unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. The newlyweds rearranging marriage in modern India is a moving account of love and romance in contemporary India. The book's author, Mansi Choksi, follows three couples across the heartland of India as they navigate boundaries of caste, class, religion, and traditional gender norms. What follows is a tale of romance, endurance, violence, and occasionally heartbreak. The Newlyweds does what most social science texts simply cannot. It brings us into the private lives of young people in love in India. To talk about the book and the broader lessons it holds, Mansi joins me on the show from Dubai. Her writing has appeared in Harper's, the New York Times, the New Yorker, National Geographic, Slate, The Atlantic. I'm very excited to welcome her to the show for the very first time. Mansi, congrats on the book. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you have this very evocative line at the start of the book, and maybe this is a good place to start. Um, you write in the early pages, when young people choose their own partners, we threaten order with chaos, um, uh, which is such a great line. And, and, you know, you spent half a decade or more understanding that order and exploring and unraveling that chaos. So, Maybe to begin with, tell us a bit about the origins of this book. You know, how did you get introduced to the three sets of couples that you ended up following for a period of years? Yeah. Um, so this, uh, the book actually began with a magazine piece for Harper's. Um, I was, um, I, I, I went, I set out to do a piece on the Love Commandos. And when I reached New Delhi and I found the shelter, I thought that I was telling the story of, um, you know, these middle-aged Indian men that were putting their lives at great risk um, to protect uh, young people who were making choices that made them vulnerable. Um, and I thought it would be, I thought I would write a particular kind of story um, about the, the good work that they were doing. Um, but as I spent more time at the shelter, I um, it started to become clear that the story was something else. Um, um, what had, what I was seeing was, um, was what they wanted me to see on the first day. But after a week, um, those, um, you know, that, that, that veneer kind of fell apart. And I was able to see that, um, actually this was an organization of people that had found a particular niche, um, in the Indian economy and found a way to make money off of, uh, people that were vulnerable by, uh, you know, making these choices that threaten um, order with chaos. Um, these were young men and women who have grown up with a really deep sense of filial duty. And when they choose to to run away and to elope and, um, you know, like choose a partner for themselves, um, it comes at great risks. A lot of them are in very serious danger of um, being hunted down by their own families and loved ones for bringing dishonor to their communities. Um, and um, they, they sought out this shelter um, to, to, because it gives them, it give them that um, sense of protection. Um, and as I and I as I kind of hung out more and more at the shelter, it turned out that um, um, you know the commandos were actually a, a profit-making organization who were keeping these uh, young people in the shelter, um, you know, after having taken, um, you know, all of their savings, uh, but also using them as uh, props to show potential donors um, to, to, to earn more donations and to keep the shelter running. Um, also find- and I should just, yeah. if I just interject for a second yeah. and pause, because, uh, you know, some of our listeners may not be familiar with this group. This is an organization 
whose leader essentially claims to aid couples that require protection and help in order so that they can marry and spend their lives together. And Sanjoy Sachdev, who was who is the leader of this group, had become something of a kind of cause celebrity. You know, he had been on Amir Khan's uh, very popular show, Satyamev Jayate. Um, there were stories written about him. And but there was a darker underbelly. And I think that's what you're referring yes. to, which is, you know, they had these grand claims about the services that they provided. But when you scratch beneath the surface, it turns out <laughs> there's a lot of money changing hands, not necessarily a lot of services being provided. Exactly. Um, so what I when I when I uh, reached the shelter in um, 2016, uh, I met Neetu and Devinder for the first time. Um, and I was just really taken in by Neetu, especially. I just thought she was she was so brilliant. She was, um, you know, this this. Um, young girl from a village in Haryana who had these really big dreams for herself. She, you know, she kind of grew up with the feeling that she belonged to a bigger place and she belonged to, you know, um, like a big city. Um, and, you know, when she falls in love with um, uh, a boy who grew up across her street, and that's that very taboo in villages that um, boys and girls from the same village are considered to be siblings and it's a form of incest. And that was one thing. And also that they belong to different communities. Um, she's Hindu, he's Sikh, and their caste differ as well. Uh, she's Panchal and he's of the Mehra caste. Um, so it was a it was a match that should have been a no go. Um, and um, and when they when they run away, um, you know, she runs away with four packed suitcases. And when you think about someone eloping, you know, you have this sense of lightness that you run away with like the most important belongings of your life and just you know run for your life. But Neetu had carefully packed all her favorite clothes. She had like taken her her photo albums, her school certificates, her diaries, gifts, teddy bears everything and she'd meet like you know carefully packed it all and run away to new delhi to be with and they're like throwing bags literally <laughs> yeah. over the wall into this getaway right, car exactly right? it's just i just thought she was so um she was just so unique and she had this really great sense of who she, you know she kind of saw herself as um the lead in her own movie that nobody was watching and like at some of her comments just was so hilarious she would she would say that it felt like i was um neetu and uh, devinder and i were like uh um you know like the leads in uh, job we met but you know our costumes were not as nice right i think at one point she said like this is too filmy yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um so i was i think i was instantly taken in by neetu and i thought that this is just such a, a great aspect of india that is um you know um, so underreported, we never really get down to the surface of what it is that makes young people from small towns and villages stick. Um, and it's, um, you know, and, you know, the kind of the, the, uh, the private lives of these people are also so political. Um, so Neetu running away with Davinder is a big political rebellious act. Um, and I wanted to use um, these stories and, you know, I wanted to use these stories in the way that we consume love stories in popular culture, especially in Bollywood and soap operas. I wanted to use that same format and use that as an entry point to, uh, you know, to kind of discuss the larger issues that are shaping India at the moment. You know, you talked about a vehicle. I think there's another vehicle going on which is uh, using these stories to tell us about kind of small town life. Yeah. You know, the geography of this book is one of its unique features. You know, many books in political science as well as in, in kind of popular fiction or even nonfiction are focused on the big metros, the big urban centers. You're talking about life in what's often called tier two or tier yeah. three India, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons that this book reminded me a lot of two other books I really admire. One is Snigdha Poonam's book, The Dreamers. Yeah. 
uh, and and Trana Bhattacharya's book Desperately she- Seeking Sharuk, yeah. uh, which has a similar quality. Right. So you know, was this focus on kind of under the radar India, if you want to call it that, yeah. uh, was that sort of deliberate? It was deliberate. I was I I especially with Reshma and Preeti, the lesbian couple. I I I feel I I have felt that uh, most of our stories about um same sex love and same sex rights have emerged and focused largely in the big cities, especially as um, the activism grew around Section 377. But I wanted to write about um, same-sex love in small villages, but also um, among working-class women. Um, because, I, I, you know, for me, it was just... Um, shocking but also not shocking that when 377 was um, struck down it really did not do much to change the lives of Reshma and Preeti um, and I thought that and was we a- should mention that this is the part of the Indian penal code that since colonial times basically outlawed homosexuality exactly and after years and decades of um, activism um, you know Finally, a victory was achieved in 2018 with um, the Supreme Court striking it down, which doesn't make it legal, but at least it does not uh, criminalize it as it had been um, all these years. And it's a major step, um, you know, in the right direction for, um, you know, same-sex love. Uh, but I wanted to, I wanted to just, I, I wanted to choose Reshma and Preeti because they come from Bazar Hathnur. They come from a very small village um, in Telangana where, um, you know, the, the idea of, you um, um, same-sex love is as it is in other small cities and even in metro is treated like a dirty secret within a family um, you know um, uh, the consequences of choosing a woman um, to love are are are, are, are very dangerous um, it can alienate you from your family but can also just kind of like lead you into a path of complete um, social ostracization and isolation um, so it was a very brave deal um, that they had done this you know Obviously, at some meta level, this book is a commentary on marriage in Indian society, although it's a commentary on a great many things. You write early on in the book that, um, and I want to quote here, marriage has a special place in Indian society. In many ways, it is the only intended outcome of growing up, right? Which I think will resonate with anyone uh, who is listening to this series <laughs> of Indian origin. But for our listeners who are not Indian, uh, uh, you know, who may not be steeped in the cultural context, tell us a bit about the kind of sociology of marriage, right? Like, what yeah. is it like? I mean, what are the pressures? What is the the sort of experience like of, of being somebody who's on the cusp of that marriageable age? Yeah, I think this kind of boils down to the fact that we derive our identity from a lot of groups that we belong to as Indians. Um, We see ourselves as, you know, belonging to our religion, caste, subclass, class, um, language, district. There's so many various identities that we that we that that make us who we are and marriage especially has a particular role in strengthening those hierarchies um so you know there's such a great emphasis on marriage in indian society because um it is a way to cement um the hierarchies and keep the power order the way that it has been um over several centuries um you know there's a common saying in um you know in in indian homes and uh, you know it's constantly um, regurgitated in bollywood and things like that that marriage is not between two people it is between two families and it is between two communities um so to think of marriage as a choice is often thought of as selfish and is often thought of as um something that is um um rebellious um to choose your own partner you're essentially going against the grain of tradition that has kept these power hierarchies in place 
Um, and, um, yeah, and that's why I think sociologically that is the, you know, that, that is where it derives its uh, meaning from. You know, I want to focus on the three sets of couples for a bit. You sort of alluded to them already uh, without spoiling the plot too much for listeners, because I would like uh, for them, uh, I'm sure you would like for them to, to pick up the book. But but let's start uh, with Nitu and Dawinder, who, who you introduced briefly. And, and you write uh, that their match really should have been unthinkable, right? Now, you talked about how this is a match between people of different castes. It's a match uh, of people who come from different uh, communities. Uh, she is Hindu and, and he is Sikh. You know, I think some people would say, well, how how distant is that really, right? In India, I mean, this is more common, but at a very, very local level, uh, there was an intense sort of blowback. Tell us a little bit about the taboo nature of their coming together. So when I went in, um, uh, you know, growing up in Bombay, I when I first met them, I thought the main issue was caste. But as I spent more time with them and I understood, um, uh, you know, the real issue was actually the fact that they came from the same village. Um, um, the part of Haryana that they come from, uh, girls and boys of the same village are considered to be siblings. So it's a, it's a form of incest in the eyes of elders, of village elders, that a boy and a girl from the same village who should see that, see each other as brother and sister are having romantic feelings for each other. Um, that's, that's not the problem. Number one, problem number two is the fact that, um, um, Nitu's father is, um, you know, a pretty wealthy man who, you know, owns a bunch of land in the village, um, uh, runs a fire, uh, a firewood shop that does pretty successfully, um, and has a son that, uh, is a Marine. Um, so these three things put him at a status higher than the Vinder's father who drives trucks, freight trucks most of his life. And, um, um, you know, had moved to farming when the elopement happened. So he's, he's considered a pretty, um, ordinary member of, um, society in Kakheri, the village that they came from. And third is the issue that, uh, they come from, um, not only different, um, uh, uh, uh religions, but also different castes. Um, so, I think the main issue was class, to be honest, and it was um, the the village taboo of uh, the fact that they were um, uh, the fact that they were from they grew up in the same village. Um, so that was uh, yeah, that was a, and and as I as I um, you know when they run away, um, there is a big violent blowout that happens. Um, Nitu's father just cannot handle the fact that you know he, he's he's almost uh, crazed by rage um, at the thought of his daughter running away with um, you know a Sikh from who's a neighbor. Um, and, um, uh, you know, when they try to, uh, track them down and, uh, they reach the police station, they take the Vinder's father, they kidnap him and take him to the police station to turn him in and ask, um, you know, kind of get the police to take action. And by then they learn that the love commandos had already informed the police about, uh, that, uh, they were dating, taking shelter with, um, the love commandos in Delhi. Um, and he's kind of really thrown off that how, how is this possible? But, Constantly throughout this narrative, they meet with police officials that that hold the same views that they have, even if by law they're expected to protect the rights of these young people. A lot of them privately sympathize with the parents who are aggrieved that their children have run away against tradition. 
Um, that was a really fascinating thing. So privately, the police officer really wants to help find them, but he can't do anything officially because, you know, the, the law says that um, people that are, uh, uh, you know, major by, by law are allowed to be together and there's nothing that can separate them. So it's very confusing for, uh, for um, you know, for, for Neetu's parents, for instance. And then, of course, you know, there is this, this you know, scepter of violence that kind of looms over all these stories. With um, Neetu and Davinder, there is a actual violent fallout um, there. Um, Davinder's mother is physically assaulted by Neetu's relatives, um, you know, she, um, she, she's almost left to die in the village square. Nobody comes forward to help her. Um, their house is destroyed. All their valuables are stolen. Um, and and most importantly, they're unable to go back and live in that home or find a buyer for that home. Nobody will is willing to buy that property, which has been, you know, which has kind of been tainted as a site of community feud. Um, and um, it's a really tragic sort of um, uh, fallout because, you know, one, this couple's, this young couple's uh, actions are, are essentially have changed and transformed the lives of um, their parents. And this was really interesting because it sort of brings uh, the news, right? And it's, it's sort of like one of those Law & Order uh, episodes, right? Ripped from the headlines, right? I mean, we talk, we hear about people like Yogi Dityanath, people in the Badrang Dal, uh, parts of the song talking about love jihad and it sounds like this outlandish conspiracy theory but it, in your book it's no longer abstract right because rf who is this muslim who a boy who's fallen in love with this hindu girl is accused of engaging in this basically swindling her into marrying him uh converting her to islam and, and bearing his child right and so w when you talked about the scepter of violence i mean they're living in this like perpetual cloud under this perpetual cloud of, of, of physical violence uh, but but not just physical violence and, and 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 this is something I wanted to get your take on but also kind of there's a mental toll right that it's taken on them and I think that it then seeps down in a in a kind of um, uh, negative way into their own relationship absolutely um I, you know Arif when I first met him he was uh, he was this young man full of dreams for himself he wanted all he wanted was to be a police officer and kind of make a name for himself and you know be the only um guy from Basmat who returns with like a white collar job or you know like a government nokri um and you know that that was the aim that he had for his, for his life and when he and then you know when he sees that um the the you know he's being accused of uh, Love Jihad by the Bajrang Dal, and the fact that, that there is a police uh, uh, missing complaint against Monica and he might be arrested in that case, all he can think of is, you know, this is going to checkmate my dreams. Um, you know, I, I haven't done this. Um, you know, we've, we've run away together. We've done everything in the cleanest way possible. And now there is this possibility that um, I may never be able to be a police officer. He constantly keeps telling her, have you ever heard of a police officer who has a police case against him? Um, and it's it's a really sad, um, uh, you know, sort of um, thing to witness that you know his re his realization and his recalibration with the fact that he's a Muslim man um, in in an India where you know this is a religious liability, like it's a liability of an identity for him at that point. Um, and it's it kind of it, it's heartbreaking to um, to see a young person who you know was um, you know was was a, was proud and um, you know wanting to work hard and um, you know kind of bought into that myth of uh, meritocracy and that if you work hard enough or if you try hard enough, you'll make it. But then something comes and just kind of um, takes it all away from him. 
Hey, Grant Masha fans. If you're looking for the latest insight into U.S. foreign policy, my colleague Aaron David Miller hosts former secretaries of state, U.S. ambassadors, White House officials, and the leading journalists on his podcast, Carnegie Connects. Go check out Carnegie Connects wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, at one point he's complaining to a friend about his romantic woes, right? And and he has this line, which is pretty incredible. He says, history is witness that Hindus and Muslims cannot be together. If we are snakes, they are mongooses, right? So it's like apples and oranges that that, that shouldn't mix. Right. Um, You know, you, you talk about this this scenario in Nagpur, right, which is, of course is the home of the Sangh Parivar, it's the home of the RSS, which is the sort of mothership of the BJP. And you narrate these scenes where every Valentine's Day there are a, there is a procession of these sword-wielding uh, fighters of the Bajrang Dal who, who pass through the city alerting Hindu families to the danger of m- prospective kind of, you know, uh, m- Muslim boys lurking outside of uh, hostels and colleges w- was to, uh, with, the, with the aim, allegedly, of seducing Hindu women. This sort of intimidation um, wasn't just a Valentine's Day procession, though. I mean, you know, in your narrative, I mean, this is sort of something that's almost in the air, isn't it? I mean, it, it's palpable. Yeah, absolutely. You really do feel it. Um, um, for instance, after they had run away and I had, I was on a reporting trip um, to, to, to meet and spend time with Arif's aunt, Akida, who was um, assaulted by, you know, who, you know, who's, who was ambushed by the Bajrang Dal the night of their elopement. Um, and I was just, um, you know, spending time in that neighborhood to get a sense of uh, you know, what it was like. Um, and with, um, and, and, and later that evening, I um, asked um, Arif's cousin um, to, to take me to uh, Monica's neighborhood. And she was like, I, I'm a Muslim girl. You expect me to go to Reshambag? Um, and it, it was just, um, he, she was like, I can go across the street where I have tuitions, but I can't go into Reshambag or I would have to be entirely covered because I don't want anyone to know that, um, you know, I'm a girl from Hassanbag, the, the, the Muslim stronghold who's going into Reshambag. What, they, they will wonder what I'm doing here. Um, so yeah, as you said, it's a very real palpable fear that almost lingers in the air um you know this 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 idea like uh, even uh, arif talks about when he would go to um to meet monica or you know they would not even meet he would just want to sort of like catch a glimpse of her as she went about her day um and um he 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 worried that um, um you know that people would he worried that someone would grab his collar and ask him what the hell he was doing in this neighborhood um it was just um it was a fear that he had to manage uh, whenever he went to see her. I, I want to sort of talk about the third couple, uh, which is Preeti and Reshma. Um, these are two uh, women who live near the Maharashtra-Telangana border and are distant relatives, actually. And they had to pretend to live as sisters, essentially, to protect themselves from the sort of homophobic legal system. Um, and you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago that in 2018, the Su- Supreme Court of India struck down Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, paving the way for same-sex relations. But you also said that uh, you may have had a legal change on the books, but social change is still lagging behind. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that sort of delta between the two. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Preeti and Reshma are working class women that come from a part of the country where, um, um, you know, they don't have 
access or they did not have access to communities that's um, you know that uh, you know that provide queer support um, so th they did not have the vocabulary to explain their love for each other um, they did not use words like gay, lesbian, same-sex love. Um, the way that they expressed love to each other were, were borrowed from Hindi films and movies um, and, and um, actually Telugu films. Um, and, um, you know, this, it's the same sort of um, idea that, I, you know, I love you, I will, I, I, I will die for you, I want to marry you. These, these ideas of love and partnership is how they frame their um, love for each other. Um, and um, when they decide to be together, they, they're actually cross cousins. And the part of uh, Telangana they come from, it's a pretty cherished observance that um, the, um, it, it's, it's, uh, they, the cross cousins mean that they're the, uh, the father and the father's, okay, there's a man, his sister, and their children can marry, but not the father's brother. It's it's uh, okay. It's complicated, but I'm sure there's a easier way to explain it. I'm just not doing a good job of this. But it's a kind of cross cousin marriage. Um, so it's not unusual for them. So if it if it were Reshma's brother, Reshma's brother and Preeti would have happily uh, been approved for marriage in that family. Um, the the problem was that they were the same sex. Um, uh, when they run away, uh, they decide that um, you know. Uh, that Reshma has come from an abusive marriage in the past. She uh, was in a marriage with a man. It was an abusive marriage. She runs away. That ends in a divorce. And now she's kind of free and open about her um, sexuality. And she decides that she's going to live, uh, you know, life on her own terms. Preeti, on the other hand, is younger. This is her first real relationship. Um, and when they run away together, they they move to Shirdi because they're both believers in Sai Baba. And uh, they find a job working as room service staff in a hotel. Um, they spend time together and they, you know, they have, um, you know, they're, they're very much in love and, you know, they're, they're really, um, you know, kind of enjoying their um, their relationship together. But in, in the private sphere, outside, they're both aware that um, it... Uh, it, it, it's a taboo um, to say that they're um, uh, in a relationship and also that it's it's something that a lot of people will not understand. So they find it easier to just tell landlords and, um, you know, their, their employees that they're sisters. Um, and that's something that they're okay with for a little bit until Preeti starts to feel that, you know, um, I need to have the legitimacy of um, societal approval um, to really feel like I'm in a marriage. Um, but, uh, but yes, also in terms of uh, the political and, you know, the divide between the political and private lives of these people, when Section 377 uh, was uh, was struck down in, in Delhi, I was in touch with uh, Reshma and Preeti, and they had no idea that um, this, this law had been passed. Um, it was not even uh, a blip that had shown up in, you know, as a push notification on their phones. Um, it was not something that they knew to celebrate or to mourn. Um, they were just so far removed from the the big changes happening um, uh, for people like them um, that um, it just felt like a very distant idea to them. Almost like an abstract, an abstract shift as opposed to an on the ground shift. I mean, you know, one of the things that I I wanted to ask you about was this idea of love marriage, right? Because um, you have these conversations all the time. Was it a love marriage? Was it an arranged marriage? And there's now all these different gradations of being between love and arranged, right? <laughs> uh, so at one point, the winder, I think he's texting a friend and he says, love marriage equals destroy life of everyone who belongs to you, right? Which is this really sort of bleak statement. And I'm wondering whether you think this is true 
even when marriage is taking place within the bounds of one's caste, religion, and so on. So, you know, the story you're telling is about people who are breaking these huge boundaries, right? Whether it's caste, religion, uh, kinship, uh, you know, traditional gender norms. But if you put that aside, do you see signs that, you know, kind of loving the, uh, marrying the person who you love, who you chose is still a sort of radical concept in society? Um, I, I actually, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I, I feel that, um, the winner especially had fallen into the trap of the, you know, like the cliche of, uh, um, a married, a, a married man who will now share jokes about, oh, if I were my love married, because my, my, my wife is, um, someone who I loved and married. Now I get burnt rotis. Had I married someone who was, who my mother had found for me, I would get, you know, nice fluffy rotis. So he constantly like, you know, shares these jokes and he's like turned into the kind of man that, um, you know, is very, um, it's not uncommon. Um, he sounds like an uncle. He kind yeah, of sounds exactly. like a standard issue uncle. He's turned into a married uncle. Um, but I, I don't think it's a um, a rebellious act anymore to marry someone you love. But there is, I would say, a certain peace um, that a lot of people choose in um, going with the partners that they are assigned. Um, it's almost like a peace and defeat. Whatever you get is now a bonus. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, whenever, whenever there's an element of love involved, there's always that, um, that, that idea of self doubt that, oh, this, this, it turned out this way because, you know, I, w- I chose what I, uh, what I, what I wanted. Had I, um, gone ahead with the, the match my family chose for me, they would not because this would not have happened because they've done it for so many years. That's how happy marriages have lasted for all these generations. Um, so I think it's this idea of, um, self-doubt uh, that uh, comes in when love is involved. I was struck by, you know, you're talking about three pretty daring couples, right? Uh, they made pretty bold choices uh, under pretty difficult circumstances. But it's interesting that despite the fact they were so bold and daring, they were also really constrained in their own private lives, even after they escaped from home, right? So at, at yeah. one point, uh, Monica's talking to her neighbor, and I think the neighbor says, you know, a girl's happiness depends on how fast she adjusts to her husband and to her in-laws, right? <laughs> and you can sort of yeah. feel this resignation that Monica herself feels in her own life with her husband, RF. And so were you sort of struck by this cognitive dissonance, right? Because like on the one aside, like total audacity and then the other, like complete conformity in some weird way. Exactly. And that's why I, that's why I think these these six people are so uh, are particularly interesting, because if I had chosen people that came from big cities, the sense of filial duty is not as strong. Um, these are I, I write somewhere in the book that these are exactly the kind of young people that are raised to resist the urge of defying tradition. Um, they have this real sense of duty towards uh, their their parents. They have a you know this need for approval, um, and because of this one rebellious act, they haven't turned into um, different people. Like for instance, Arif will not bear the thought of his sister having a love marriage. It's something he cannot tolerate. Um, you know, uh, even when Neetu is um, dating the Vindar, she keeps these. Uh, you know, she she fasts every Monday, praying that uh, you know Lord Shiva will turn him into a husband because that would give her the legitimacy uh, in her eyes that I'm not somebody's girlfriend, I'm somebody's respectable wife. Um, and yeah, I I, I this 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 constantly showed up this cognitive dissonance that you talked about where you expect them um to have a um you know pretty open minded views about 
um, even aspects related to this big rebellious move that they made. But that's not that's not often the case. Um, and that's what I found interesting because, you know, um, this this one rebellious act has changed your life. But you are still shaped by the same biases that um, that you were trying to defy when you when you chose to to make, to do this rebellious thing, um, and you know you have to make space in your day to day life for that rebellious act to coexist with these biases, because it's not as if Monica now believes that um, um, that it's. Um, uh, that she has favorable views towards Muslims. That's not true at all. She still thinks that um, Hindu and upper class Hindus are uh, a special breed. Or um, it's not as if uh, um, Neetu thinks that um, her caste is no longer higher than the Vindars. They still have those same ideas. Um, and I found that really interesting that they had to reckon with um, both their choices and their own biases. So, so, so let me sort of bring this conversation to an end by by asking you a, a, a perhaps an unfair uh, question here. But you you write at one point towards the end of the book that you know over the course of reporting, you know, for many years, you witness Nitu and Davinder grow up, Arif and Monica grow in love, Reshman Pratik go apart. Uh, at, at the start of the book, you talk about your own family's experience, your mother's own ex- decision to marry a man at the age of 18 against her family's wishes. About a decade later, they end up uh, divorcing. Um, so sort of, you know, what has this book sort of taught you about, you know, modern love in, in the quote unquote new India? Yeah. So one thing it's taught me is that our generation, despite having grown up in completely different circumstances, we had access to the internet. We were growing up when uh, the economy was liberalizing. You know, we had the sense that we're in a really ascendant part of the country. Um, unlike our parents' generation that grew up in completely different circumstances, they grew up during the emergency. Uh, I mean, much, I mean, before the emergency in post-partition India and, you know, when India was just trying to find its footing. Um, even though these circumstances are so different, I don't think that there is a big difference in the way that we conduct our private lives. Our parents' generation conducted their private lives based on, um, you know, disappointing their parents and uh, and uh, and us too. Um, and that's what I found uh, really striking. I, was, I guess when I went into the project, I was hoping to see something different. And what I learned was actually my mom and these six people are pretty much the same. Um, and the same, uh, you know, they, they, they carry the same sense of, um, you know, um, the same sense of this burden of was it worth it um, that kind of looms large over their lives it loomed large over my childhood it looms large in their day-to-day lives at the moment um, so my takeaway is that um, we're actually the same as our parents <laughs> <laughs> I think the the older we get the sharper that that realization probably uh, probably comes in uh, my guest on the show this week is the author Mansi Toksi. her new book is called The Newlyweds Rearranging Marriage in Modern India Here's what the author Amitabha Kumar said of the book. Love is transformative even when it fails. That is one of the lessons of the newlyweds. And just as it is with love, I felt most alive when reading this book. Uh, congratulations, Manzi. This is a real accomplishment. And I hope that you are in the process, if you haven't already, of optioning the Netflix series because the the script uh, and the cinematography practically kind of write itself. But, um, but best of luck to you. This was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Grantham Asha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nithya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.